the greatest commandment. My guess is for many of us in this room, you could perhaps even rattle it off, if not word perfect, very, very close. When Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? It was very simple. You'll love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all your mind. Sometimes they will all of your strength. And we, we, we know that. But sometimes the challenge is, what does that kind of look like in real life? Chuck Colson of a Watergate infamy and uh, out of his time in prison uh, as a f- new follower of Jesus Christ, he, he sought some of those answers along the way. And while he knew that commandment and had memorized it along the way, he, he wanted to know what, what, what does it look like? Uh, he was really trying to answer the question, uh, you know, how, how do you love God? How do you love God? If the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all of your being, how exactly do you do that? And so Chuck started going and interviewing people and asking these folks that were ahead of him on this following Christ curve, how do you love God? And the answers he got were most interesting. Well, by loving him, one stammered, and then added by explanation, with all my heart, soul, and mind by maintaining a worshipful heart. Offering myself as an acceptable sacrifice, another answered quickly. When Colson pressed for specifics, he began detailing his devotional reading schedule, his prayer life. Halfway through his discourse, he stopped and shrugged, let me think about it and maybe get back to you. Faithful church attendance was a frequent response. Tithing ranked high on the list. Several recited favorite sins they no longer pursued, while many tried to explain loving God as as a feeling, almost something like a a romantic uh, encounter. Others looked at him rather suspiciously, perhaps thinking that his query was a trick question along the way. But here's the amazing thing. No one, no one in all the people he asked answered that question with Jesus' own answer. How did Jesus answer that question? In John 15, as we've been looking at this central passage in this theme of transformed by the gospel, in verse 10, he very succinctly puts it. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. But that's not the only time he said it, not even the only time he said it in this upper room discourse. In chapter 14, as he's, he's pouring into these disciples in these last moments before his, his arrest and eventual crucifixion. In verse 15, he says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Verse 23, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words and the word that you hear is not mine, but the father's who sent me. Obedience, Jesus said, is this outward expression of our love for God. 
That how do you love God with all of your being? It shows up in obedience. It shows up in keeping his commandments. And the very word commandments at the beginning suggests at least two things to us. It suggests, first of all, a clear direction. It's a clear direction. This is not something that's just uh, desire, I'd like to see this happen, or it's a suggestion for you to take under consideration. Or, no, 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 no. There was this clear direction. This is what God in his love, in his wisdom, out of the holiness of his character demands. And it's not only a clear direction, but a commandment implies authority. Authority. That he has the right to require obedience. The one who created us, the one who sustains us, the one who regenerates us in Jesus Christ has the absolute right to require obedience. In fact, is one of the definitions of command is simply to direct with authority, to direct with authority, that we give direction and we do so with an authority. Now, here's what I want you to understand, because sometimes people, people want to put the commands of God and the love of God as kind of in two different camps or are almost opposing each other along the way. But both the commandments of God and the love of God express the character of God. Both the commandments of God and the love of God express the character of God. It's somewhat popular even in church circles today to just want to talk about, well, love God and love people, and that's not wrong, but then people kind of start taking that in a lot of interesting directions. Love, Jesus said, is tied with the commandments, that obedience is our outward expression of of love. Now, in saying that, I want to make sure we have these distinctions very, very clear. We've been trying to say this over and over again in different ways throughout this series. In legalism, under a legalism, we try to earn God's love and favor by our obedience. That we feel like if, if, I, if I do this, if I obey this, if I do this or don't do this or whatever the command says, somehow I will earn God's love. I will earn God's favor. That's why, by the way, I think you find many, many, many religious people who are harsh and judgmental because they're operating out of a spirit of legalism. That they somehow think that what they do earns something from God. It earns God's love. It earns God's favor. That's not what Jesus is talking about. In fact, his, uh, he stood against the legalism of the Pharisees. Paul would stand against it again and again and again. Under grace, we respond to God's love and favor by our obedience. We realize I can't earn a thing. Anything that has been earned has been earned by the perfect life of the sacrificial substitutionary death, uh, death of Jesus Christ. And I understand I don't earn a thing, but I respond. I respond to God's love and favor by our obedience. Or as we've tried to say it through this series in kind of a shorthand way, we obey God's commandments not to be loved, but because we are loved 
in Christ. It's not so that God will love me. It's because I have already been a recipient of God's unmerited favor, His extravagant love toward me. My response in gratitude, my response in love toward Him is obedience. Obedience becomes the outward expression of my love for God. And to kind of drive this home, I want us to see a pattern that we see throughout Scripture. And I want to kind of illustrate that through three stories. One, Old Testament. Uh, one, when Jesus was walking the earth. And one, with the resurrected uh, Jesus Christ. So we're going to move uh, quickly through these stories. The first is way back in the Old Testament, in the book of Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah. And we'll see this first story. But let me give you the pattern. And we're going to hold that pattern up there for a while because I want you to see it. Here's the pattern. They all start with G. God, guilt, gospel, grace, and gratitude. God, we have this, this encounter with God. We understand and we begin to get a glimpse of who God is and all of his holiness and all of his righteousness. And what that does immediately, if we if it, take that any kind of serious at all, we, we will be overwhelmed with a sense of guilt because our sin has separated us from a holy God. And that throws us upon our need for grace. And we hear the message of the gospel that God has intervened and done for us what we could not do for ourselves. And out of that flows a life of gratitude, gratitude that expresses itself in love toward God and love toward others and obedience toward God's command. So that's the pattern, God, guilt, grace, gospel, and gratitude. Now, I want you to see that in the context of these three stories. Isaiah chapter 6, for perhaps uh, several of you in the room, you are very familiar with this, this encounter. It's probably one of the better known passages passages out of the lengthy book of Isaiah, the first part of chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one called to another and said, holy, holy, Holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. Paul's right there. God. He's getting this incredible glimpse. He's seeing God as he's never seen him before. He's seeing God in his holiness, and there is a sense of, of terror even to that as he begins to understand his own sinfulness, his own guilt. Look as it continues to unfold, verse 5. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. As he encounters this holy God, all of a sudden, all of his education, all of his religion, all the things that he's taught other people don't matter because he understands instantly, in a moment, that he stands guilty before a holy God. He is without hope in the presence of this holy God. But then he experiences grace. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, 
This has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin atoned for. In this demonstration of grace, as he has this vision, he sees this, this, this burning uh, coal, and, and it, it touches his lips, and it, it is an act of God's grace to him as he's recognizing his, he is a man of unclean lips among a people of unclean lips. So there's God, and there's this recognition of guilt, and then there's this experience of overwhelming grace. But then what does Isaiah do in response to that? The next verse. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am. Send me. In this moment, he says, I'm available. I'm available. I I don't know where you're sending. I don't know what you're sending to do. But I'm available. Because he's had an encounter with the holiness of God, which has made him painfully aware of the guilt of his sin. But his life has been touched by the grace of God, his sin atoned for, forgiven. And his response of gratitude is to say, anywhere, anything, here I am. I am available. God, guilt, grace, gratitude. The second story follows similar pattern, and yet it's different and alike. It's different because the characters are uh, radically different. Isaiah is very educated. He would have been in the upper echelons of his society. In Luke's gospel, in Luke 7, we we encounter a, a woman who is perhaps the opposite. She's, as far as we know, not in the upper echelons of society. She would not have had opportunities to have had the education uh, that Isaiah and others would have had. And fact is, her her reputation in the community is quite the opposite. It appears that everybody knows that she is a, a sinner. In Luke 7, the setting is a dinner party. It's a dinner party thrown by a Pharisee by the name of Simon. And he invites Jesus, not with the best of motives it would appear, certainly seeking to understand, perhaps to trick or to trap him along the way. They're reclined at table, as would have been the custom of the day, to eat. But Simon in his pride, Simon in his perhaps judgment that he is somehow smarter than, better than, uh, more righteous than Jesus, doesn't even offer uh, his guests some of the basic uh, rights of hospitality. And into this scene, this woman shows up, an uninvited guest to the party. Verse 37, behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house brought an alabaster flask of ointment. She stands behind him at his feet and she's weeping and, and her tears are, are wetting his feet and her, with her hair she, she is brushing them away and she anoints them with, with oil. And the Pharisee sees this, and, and he, he quickly judges. If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. Jesus knows his heart. So, Simon, I have something to tell you. And so he tells him a story about two debtors. 
one who owed a much larger amount than another. And then he asked the simple question, when this money lender just forgives both of their debts, which do you think would love him more? Pharisee thinks for a moment, perhaps wondering if there's a trick in there. Then he says, I suppose the one who canceled the larger debt. He said, you've judged rightly. Then he turns from Simon to the woman. He says, you see this woman. I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she's not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to uh, say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Now, understand the pattern. We don't know all the encounters that this woman has had with Jesus before this moment, but it would appear that, that she's had some encounter with him because she shows up ready to express love, ready to express gratitude to Christ. She breaks all social convention. She steps into a place where she knows she's going to be judged and perhaps even treated very harshly, but, but, but she's motivated. She's motivated by grace. She's motivated by love along the way because she has been forgiven. And so when Jesus, Jesus proclaims your sins are forgiven, it's kind of a twofold audience. One, it, it's for Simon. It's for the Pharisees that are gathered there. It's for them to understand that he has the power he has the authority to forgive sins. But it's also, I think, for her in this very public setting to say, not only to her personally, but to others because of the reputation she has in the town, please know her life is different. Her sins have been forgiven. She's not forgiven because she washed his feet. She's washing his feet because she's already experienced that forgiveness. She comes into this setting motivated by this great love and this great gratitude toward her Savior. Jerry Bridges puts it this way, consciousness of one's own sinfulness and assurance of forgiveness are the foundation of our love for God. When you are conscious of your sin, when you have an assurance of forgiveness, it is foundational to you responding to God in love. And the outward expression of that love is obedience. We encounter the holiness of God. We are aware of, of our own guilt before a holy God. We begin to understand that He's done for us in grace what we could never do for ourselves through the life and the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And in gratitude, we respond to Him in worship. We respond to Him in love. We respond to Him in obedience. Let's look one more time. Third story, Acts chapter 9. It's the record of Saul's conversion. Saul, who we would most commonly know as Paul, 
as his name changed, uh, giving a reflection of his identity change in Jesus Christ. And, and we won't take time to, to, to read that lengthy passage. My guess is many of us are, are familiar with it. If you're not, I encourage you to, to dive in there a, a little bit deeper. But here is this man who has been this persecutor of the church. He is a Pharisee of Pharisees. If religion could make you right with God, he was at the head of the class. As he's going, and he has has already watched followers of Christ be killed and stood and gave his approval. He has orders to hunt down followers of Jesus Christ and drag them back for imprisonment and trial. And in one of these journeys, the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ meets him on the road to Damascus, and he's blinded. And his physical blindness is a representation of his spiritual blindness. As religious and as moral and as okay as he thought he was, he was not. And as he awaits somewhat helplessly being led into town by some of those traveling with him, a follower of Christ by the name of Ananias comes to him and and lays hands on him and prays on him and the scales fall from his physical eyes, a representation of, of the scales that have fallen from his spiritual eyes. And then you begin to see this persecutor of the faith turning and beginning to proclaim Christ and Christ alone. You read through his letters, you follow his narrative in the rest of the book of Acts and you find a life radically transformed by the grace of Jesus Christ. This one who thought he knew God, encountered God more fully. And in that moment, he began to understand his grace, his guilt, and his need for God's grace. And the rest of his life was spent in gratitude, in love, in obedience, and in a passionate pursuit of everything that God had planned for his life. But it's important for us at this point to make sure we understand what grace really is. Because it's what Paul came to understand. You see, grace can be defined as God's blessing through Christ to people who deserve his curse. Now let me sit with this for a moment. Because what I have found is that very often when we talk about grace, when we sing about amazing grace, we're not thinking about it in these terms. In fact, is what I have experienced is that a lot of times we approach God's grace as, I just needed a little bit of help. In other words, I I know I'm not perfect, where most of us are pretty gracious to admit that out loud, right? Well, I know I'm not perfect, and that's usually followed by, but, right? I know I'm not perfect, but... We suspicion we're at least above average, right? We're not as bad as so-and-so. We're at least in the top 50%, right? And in our more honest moments, some of us would probably say, you know, I'm a pretty solid 75, right? I'm a pretty solid 75. And some of us, bent on high achievement, might even begin to think secretly to ourselves, I've never had a 75 in my life. (laughs) Hey, 85 at a minimum, 85% at a minimum, right? And when we begin to think in those terms, what we see grace says is grace is God filling the gap. 
43% over here, uh, uh, 25% here. Oh, this is a good one. We only had to give 15% here. Wow. No, 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 no. That's not what the Bible says. What God says is we don't come with 50%, 75%, 85%. We come as those who deserve his curse. We're below zero. We not only have no merit, that we actually have deficit. And that Christ became the curse. He took on the curse. He hung on a tree as a curse so that he could offer to us forgiveness. And until we really understand the holiness of God, until we really understand the the, the depth of our guilt, we will not be amazed by grace. We will not be overcome by grace. We'll continue to try to, to earn it some way, somehow in our own fashion. And so when we become to this whole question of, of obedience, and, and if I love God, I will obey his commandments, it forces me to ask the question, what is it? What is it that transforms my duty to desire? What is it that could possibly change my ought to to want to? Because sometimes we avoid church. Sometimes we avoid religious settings. Sometimes we might even avoid the Bible because we're afraid. I'm going to read something in there, and it's going to make me feel guilty. Because it's going to tell me something I ought to not do, or something I ought to do, and I'm not doing it. What is it that changes duty to desire, ought to, to want to? Well, Paul spent the rest of his life helping us answer that question. And the answer is simply, it's our response of gratitude to the love of Christ as seen in the gospel. When you truly love somebody, you want to do things for them, right? It becomes a delight, not a duty, right? And so this Saul who becomes Paul, this one who encountered a holy God and was confronted with his guilt and then was touched by God's grace made possible through the gospel of Jesus Christ, spent the rest of his life living out of gratitude, living out of a passionate love for Jesus Christ. And his letters just permeate with that over and over again. Let me give you three quick examples. 2 Corinthians 5, for the love of Christ controls us. That is what controls us. That is what compels us because we have concluded, we concluded this, that one has died for all and therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live, Paul and me and you and everybody that names the name of Jesus Christ, that those who live might no longer live for themselves but for him who for their sake died and was raised. And in this overwhelming gratitude for the love of Christ that now controls us, I don't live for myself. I live for him who died and was raised again. To the Galatians, he said, I have been crucified with Christ. My old life separated from God is dead. It no longer exists. It is no longer I who live, but this new life is Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith 
in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I'm going to spend the rest of my life in gratitude, loving the one who loved me and gave himself for me. Let me just give you one more example from Paul's pen. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. His experience of, of his unworthiness and the greatness of God's grace so overwhelmed him that he gave the rest of his life in this passionate work, this passionate pursuit, knowing that it was the grace of God that was in him that enabled it every step of the way. What changes duty to delight? What changes ought to, to want to? It's a recognition of the greatness of our God, the greatness of our guilt. The amazement of grace that comes to us through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And out of a heart captured by his love, a response of gratitude toward his grace, duty becomes delight, becomes desire. Alt tos become want tos. The commandments don't become onerous. And they become the pathway to life and to freedom as God designed it to be. Let me give you a picture. Train on the tracks, right? The train without power just sits there. No matter how well laid out the tracks are, it's not going to move. But the most highly powered train without the tracks doesn't go anywhere, right? We call that a derailment. (laughs) It's kind of a picture of this relationship between love and obedience to God's commands. You see, God's love for us manifested in the gospel provides the motivation and the power for obedience Paul said, for it is God who is at work within you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. It is the gospel that empowers us and motivates us toward obedience. But God's commandments provide the direction for our obedience. Just like the tracks provide the direction on which the train will travel, so the commands of God provide direction, a direction that is motivated and empowered by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we need both the gospel of Christ and we need the commands of Christ because the commands of Christ and the love of God both reveal to us the character of God. That's why throughout this series, we've been bringing you back time and time and time again to this very simple diagram. Because it's a recognition that as I continue to be transformed by grace, There's going to be this pattern we've just been talking about. 
It's not just a one-time pattern, but it's an ongoing pattern. There's a growing awareness of God's holiness, God. There's a growing awareness of my sinfulness, my guilt. And the more and more that grows, the more and more I am thrown back to the gospel to depend fully and completely and more deeply upon the finished work of Jesus Christ. And then out of that, I live a life of obedience. I live a life of gratitude toward God. J.C. Ryle put it this way, the man whose soul is growing feels his own sinfulness and unworthiness every year. Every year. We'll feel more a sense of that. And that thrusts us back again and again and again on the gospel. What is it that transforms duty to desire, ought to to want to? It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's being touched. It's being overwhelmed by the depth of his grace toward me. But I want to leave you with one last thing because I I don't want you to miss this. Because sometimes we talk about obedience. Sometimes we talk about these things. Sometimes it can feel feel like a burden. Sometimes it can feel like drudgery along the way. But I want you to make the connection. In John 15, 10, as he talks about uh, obedience, he, he said, if you keep my commands, you will abide in my love. It's how we stay connected to his love. It shows and expresses our love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Then verse 11, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. God is not glorified by sour, drudgery-filled, duty-checking-off religious folks. God is most glorified in us when we are most captured by the greatness of our God, the depth of our guilt, the power of the gospel, and we live out the rest of our life in love toward him and love toward others, expressed in obedience toward him, out of gratitude for all that he has done for us. And in that, there is not drudgery. There is not burden. There is joy. God is glorified when his joy-filled followers love him and love others well. May it be so in my life and in yours. Let's go before him in prayer. Oh, Father, you make all of this possible because of your perfect provision in Jesus Christ. Uh, You, (laughs) wow, You model for us exactly the perfection of a father. You are perfect in holiness. You are perfect in all that you do. And yet you understand our weakness. You understand our need. And you reach out to us in incredible, amazing grace. And you truly transform us from the inside out. And so, Father, would you teach us? Would you teach us how to practice preaching the gospel to ourselves every single day? Would you give us a growing awareness of the greatness and the holiness of God 
a growing awareness of the reality of our sin, a growing awe and appreciation for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And would you empower us to live a life of such gratitude towards you that our obedience is not have to, it's want to. It's want to because we love you. I'm just going to ask you to be still for just a moment or two more. We want to help you.